before Big Ben's throw, before Santonio Holmes' catch, before Pittsburgh became Sixburg. There were doubts. There was a daunting schedule. There was a dominant defense. This is the season. 2008 Pittsburgh Steelers. Welcome Steelers Nation. I am Bryant McFadden, your host and cornerback on the 2008 Pittsburgh Steelers. On this podcast, I'll revisit our Super Bowl run from a decade ago with former teammates and coaches, delivering you behind-the-scenes insights and memories on the biggest plays, personalities from that memorable season. Let's get to this week's game and guess. Steeler Nation, we're back recapping the 2008 championship season. Pittsburgh Steelers, we are on now to week 13. And before we get started recapping that week 13 victory against the New England Patriots, I must give a quality introduction to the guy that was the mastermind of that outstanding historical great defense at that time. No other than Pro Football Hall of Famer. 14 years as an NFL coach, I mean NFL player, I'm sorry, 45 years as an NFL coach, two-time Super Bowl champion, defensive coordinator, was on the Steelers' sidelines drawing up outstanding defensive plays for 13 seasons. Dick LeBeau, thank you, Coach. It's an honor having you on this important week week 13 Steeler fans are jumping for joy knowing that the mastermind is on coach it's an honor how's everything going with you well you know the Steeler nation is universal and it's always an honor to have anything associated with the Steeler nation and particularly with uh, one of my old players uh B-Mac it's great to be talking to you pal uh no question coach it's an honor you know having you on and before we Recap that week 13 victory against the Patriots. Uh, Steelers won that ball game 33 to 10. Uh, Matt Castle was the quarterback for the Patriots filling in for an injured Tom Brady. But before we do that, coach, you're an iconic individual, not just for the, the city of Pittsburgh or not just for the city of Detroit because that's where you played, but for the football world, in my opinion. And when you look at your, 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 your legacy, I mean, it's unbelievable, Coach. You've been you've been a part of the NFL world for what fifty nine years, fifty nine years, fifty nine yeah. years. You started off uh, as a player with the Cleveland Browns in nineteen fifty nine, and then you went on with the Detroit Lions from fifty nine to nineteen seventy two. But let's talk about your time as a player, as a player, because if you don't know anything about Coach LeBeau, and many people only know Coach LeBeau as a coordinator as an outstanding coach. But before he was a coach, he was one of the top corners in the league. 62 career interceptions. That's still a Lions franchise record. Uh, tied for seventh all-time in NFL history. You had 762 interception return yards, which currently ranks third all-time in team history. Extremely durable. Uh, 14 years, you played in 185 games, uh, placing you fourth on Detroit's all-time list coach and i used to talk to you a lot about this while i was playing in pittsburgh 
your time as a player having over 60 interceptions, you know, what was your biggest, your best attribute as a player? I was, uh, I just wanted to be known as a hard worker, as uh, a guy who prepared for the game. Uh, I always took pride, and as you can remember, uh, when we were together, Brian, uh, of being uh, a good tackler, a good run forcer, and uh, I always made you guys uh, stick your nose in there, show up. There weren't there weren't no cover corners on, on the Steelers. No, we sir. were all going to go up there and get our clothes dirty and get in there with the rest of the defense. And that's the way I played. I always took uh, a lot of pride in that. And uh, uh, the fact that uh, I was able to play in 171 straight games, uh, which uh, for a defensive back is uh, pretty unusual. Uh, those were the best things. And, and I, I do take pride in my uh, interception total. It was 62, and it was in an era uh, when they ran the ball a lot more uh, than they do now. They didn't throw the ball uh, like they do now. So I know I would have got a few more if I was playing in today's <laughs> uh, game where they throw it every other day. Uh, but uh, I also uh, often say that I think I dropped as many as I intercepted because after about seven or eight years, your hands are so mangled up you can't catch anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I was fortunate to play with uh, some great teammates and some really good defenses, and uh, we did. Uh, we did. It was almost impossible to run on us, so they did have to throw on us a little more, and it was uh, a little easier to predict uh, when the pass was coming, and that helped me with the interceptions. But uh, it was mostly uh, great pressure from. Uh, my teammates, and if you remember, we always stressed that uh, pressure aspect with the Steelers mm-hmm. and enabled our guys back there in the secondary and the linebackers to get some good interception totals uh, when we were all together. Yes, sir. And and talking about great teammates that you played with in Detroit, you played with some nice Hall of Famers, uh, Dick Knight, Train Lane, um, Lim Barney, uh, Yale uh, Larry, Talk about those guys in the secondary and what in the chemistry you guys had, because, of course, you know, Night Train Lane was was probably, I, I guess, the tone setter, to say the least. But you talk about Lim Barney, outstanding player who also wore the number 20, to be exact, the number that I wore uh, while I was in Pittsburgh. Talk about what that meant to you playing with so many outstanding players in the secondary and the chemistry you guys had. You know. You know this, Brian, from the years of teams that you've been on, that once once you have a teammate, uh, you become brothers for life. Mm-hmm. And one thing about the, the great Steeler team that we're talking about on this phone call and the great championship team that they were, uh, all of those guys stay in touch, and you can you can – uh, confirm this because uh, you talk to them all the time. But you will not only do that now, but you'll do it for the rest of your life. And I still talk to all these guys that we're talking about. Wow. And, uh, well, there's a, there's a bond, you know, that you go through, uh, 
there's a physical death and there's a, a mental a preparation. And you spend so much time together, you know, and, and you know, and maybe it is a cliche. You say we're family, we're family, but yep. you really do become family. And that that's that's something that I tell people all the time. Um, you know, anytime I reminisce and think about, you know, my time there in Pittsburgh, it wasn't just a working relationship. We actually loved each other. We actually spent time with each other away from the football facility. And that showed on Sundays as far as the chemistry we had, uh, a, 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 a bunch of guys that were willing to do everything in their power to make sure we win ball games and didn't care about who received the media attention or the accolades. And I think that played a lot with us because it starts with the head and it trickled down to the players. And of course you coach, you know, having the respect that you had and also being able to command the room like you did for us was huge. Coach LeBeau, you were inducted into the hall in 2010 and I was there. We got an opportunity to travel with you to Canton um, was an unbelievable experience for me and for uh, my teammates. We all wore and all th- we all got Dick LeBeau jerseys. Coach, do you remember that when we all traveled to Canton and your number 44 Detroit Lions uh, uh, jersey? Uh, it's one of the very, very highlights of my life. I'll never forget it. Uh, I, I've always been indebted to the Steeler organization. Uh, uh, this is probably not talked about much either, but uh, the owners, the Rooneys, they shut down training camp. Yes, and, yes. Uh, the whole team, the whole coaching staff, we, you know, Canton is not that far from Pittsburgh, uh, and that probably made it possible. But they all came uh, to my induction ceremony, and uh, it, what a what an honor! It was such a thrill for me, and uh, I did okay. But I, I noticed that I had to quit looking at you guys. <laughs> I, I would, I don't think I would have made it through that thing because uh, just seeing the joy in your faces. And uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, family and the pride that you take uh, in the effort and the performance, uh, that that defense was a very, very special defense. And then to have them all there that day, uh, I will always be indebted to all of you, first, for wanting to come, and second, for the Steelers to uh, arrange it that you could all be there. And it was... Uh, do I remember? <laughs> I'll never forget. Yeah, that was an unbelievable uh, experience for me. Also, uh, being a part uh, uh, of your coaching uh, style and philosophies, and being able to see it paid off uh, rightfully. So it took took them long enough, but you know what? You're now in the hall. You will forever be known as a Hall of Famer. And with that being said, as we transition into your coaching career, uh, you started off as a special teams coach with the Philadelphia Eagles. You had a, a, a short stint with the Green Bay Packers, of course, Cincinnati as a DB coach, and then D.C. and Cincinnati, uh, traveling to Pittsburgh as a defensive back coach, and then D.C., and then, of course, going back to Cincinnati as a defensive coordinator, interim head coach, and then going right back to the Steel City. Uh, Buffalo before returning to the Steel City, and, of course, a few years ago, uh, you finished off in Tennessee. But when you look at your coaching career, Coach, you, you coached a lot of outstanding players. You had quality opportunities. But this, the, 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 the Pittsburgh element as far as your coaching career, 
as far as the organizations that you were, were a part of before Pittsburgh and after Pittsburgh, tell the listeners the difference as far as the Steel City, the organization, the tradition, the prestige, when you look at some of the other organizations that you coach with. Well, again, uh, I I was blessed again, uh, Brian. Uh, I was, for all those years uh, that we alluded to in coaching, uh, the bulk of my coaching career, I was 18 years in Cincinnati and 16 years in Pittsburgh. And uh, really, uh, I think there was a total of five different teams that I've coached for. And uh, I know coaches that have done that in six years. (laughs) In our our profession, you tend to move around a little bit. But I was lucky to be able to uh, really centralize my coaching career in those uh, primarily in those two franchises, not completely, but primarily. And uh, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, They were uh, both uh, early uh, franchises in the league. They were both family-owned, family-operated. In both places, you never really needed a contract. Uh, If the owner told you something uh, and you were talking to him, that's the way it was. Uh, it was different than than things are today, for sure. Uh, I, don't, I didn't, after several years, I never even signed a contract till halfway through the season, but it didn't matter. Uh, we, we had each other's word. Uh, I do believe uh, I've been to six Super Bowls and uh, only won two, uh, lost four. Uh, but I'll take those percentages. My two championship teams were both Steeler teams. Uh, I went there four times as a Steeler, twice as a Bengal, and uh, each time was uh, with a tremendous uh, group of players. Uh, but, of course, those two championship rings on my fingers are, are both Steeler rings, and uh, I will always feel a little bit closer to the players in particular uh, that uh, fostered my career, that kept my name popular, that really uh, kept me my name bouncing around long enough to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I love all you guys. The defense that we're talking about today is uh, probably as good a defense as ever stepped on the field. And uh, the numbers and the statistics that they put up doubt if they're ever equaled again. Uh, the the game is, uh, was very wide open uh, when you guys did what you did, but it seems even more so wide open now, higher scoring. and uh, uh, Your guys' statistics uh, rated back to the 1960s when I was playing, and we were leading the league. And I've looked at all the stats, and it's not that much difference. You didn't give up that much more yards than we gave up, and it was a different game when I played. So mm-hmm. uh, I'll always remember you guys. I'll always remember the season that we're talking about. And I'll always thank my lucky stars that I got to coach you guys. Coach, talking about the 2008 championship team, the defense, no question, was an unbelievable unit. Uh, like I said, throughout many opportunities on the podcast that we held 13 straight opponents under 300 yards. We were first in points allowed 
Uh, we were second in rushing yards allowed. We were first in passing yards allowed. When you look at all the personalities that we had on that defense, you know, you look at James Ferrier, Casey Hampton, Troy Palomalu, uh, 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 James Harrison, Larry Foote, Deshae Townsend, Ike Taylor, with all the personalities that we had and you know, knowing each player extremely well, how did that go into your thought process as far as developing a game plan week in and week out? Well, with the roster that we had, and uh, you just put some of the statistics out there, but uh, I mean, nobody ever did anything running hardly at all. They couldn't get to the line of scrimmage. And uh, it, it, those those kinds of numbers are 1960-type numbers in the National Football League. Uh, I realized pretty early on how good you were. And uh, most of the preparation that I tried to do to make sure I stayed out of your guys' way and let you go do your work. And uh, you were so good. I've always tried to look at the, the team that I'm coaching uh, try to discern uh, their strongest assets individually and then try to incorporate that in a defensive scheme that will allow them uh, to play to their strengths and to minimize their weaknesses. And uh, getting to know the individual, understanding their personality, understanding uh, some of their likes and dislikes, you cannot uh, incorporate everybody on the defense into everything. But uh, we had, you can remember this, we had various, defenses that stress the strengths of various players. And uh, I thought that we could match uh, the opponent, uh, what their strengths and weaknesses were, uh, with with the ability that we had. And uh, we spent a lot of time trying to just get you guys to understand what the opponent was going to do and then enjoy a Sunday afternoon watching you get it done or whenever we were playing Thursday night or whatever. Uh, you you guys uh, were so consistently difficult to move the ball on, and uh, there was no weakness. There was no spot in that defense where the opponent could say, well, we can go here and have uh, a percentage of success because they were going to have a problem wherever they went. And then that, that spatial quality of any great championship team, and that was uh, togetherness, probably as strong with that group of men as with any any group that ever stepped on a football field any anywhere. And maybe a little bit underrated uh in terms, uh, you know, you're always going to talk about the athletic ability, how strong, how fast uh, you guys were, how how, how team orientated you were, but you guys were smart, and uh, you were a smart defense, and we could make changes uh, in between downs. We could make changes at halftime. We could adjust if something that I thought was going to be okay wasn't. I could easily go to plan B with you guys. And quite often, before I got the damn thing drawn up on the board, you guys said, yeah, we got it. We did that two weeks ago. We did it a month ago. (laughs) And that was a a blessing from a coaching standpoint. But 
those are those are strengths uh, that you can't teach, and uh, it was more character of, of each of you guys individually and collectively. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you went all the way uh, and and won a tremendous string of games at the end of the year. That's a very difficult difficult thing to do in the National Football League. Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. No question, Coach. When you look at the game, the innovation of the game has changed dramatically, uh, especially that year when we started to see a lot of spread attacks, a lot of teams doing no huddle, uh, 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 coming to the line in a no huddle formation, trying to catch the defense, you know, a little bit on their heels. And one of the strengths for us was the ability to incorporate fire zone concepts. And you have been known to be the creator of the fire zone, credited to being, being the creator of the fire zone. And that's something that a lot of teams are running. Throughout football, from high school, from the collegiate standpoint, we ran a lot of fire zone concepts at Florida State and being a part of what you did in Pittsburgh. Number first, first thing I would love for you to explain, you created the fire zone. And I remember having this conversation with you one day at practice on the sideline. I was like, coach, why everybody wants to give you credit for the fire zone? And could you explain to the listeners how you came up with that concept before it actually became the fire zone? The offenses had pretty much caught up with the uh, the man-to-man blitzes, uh, which are still popular. Will always be run. We ran them, not as many as the far zone, but they're they're a good complement. I think they work together. Uh, some of the things that that over the years that offenses have have gone to uh, to attack far zones are, are a little more vulnerable to man uh, pressures, and uh, I think with a mix. You can, you have a chance at least to keep the offense. The offenses are very, very skilled, as you know, uh, BMAC today. They were very, very skilled, uh, versus that defense that we're talking about. They were very, very skilled when I played. It's, it's the top level of football in the world. End of, end of story. But they had these, uh, hot reads and automatic checks and, uh, they, they had ways that determining who was coming and then going to the empty spot. Uh, they still can do it. Guys like Manning and Brady are so good at it, and they hold you up there, and they get a look and a feel, and, and then they're so accurate with what they're doing that it's hard to get them off the field. And uh, the, the thing about the the zone pressure, I've started thinking in my mind, what if we showed one thing but actually ended up rolling a different way uh, and instead of putting everybody in a man-to-man situation where they could just break away uh, away from where the pressure was coming and go to work one-on-one on, on one of our defenders, if we couldn't area people and even trap with some people and, and have them thrown into a trap player as opposed to thrown away from a man player. And uh, essentially, uh, that was a concept. Uh, there was a need uh, that the time in the league had come, the offenses pretty much had the answer uh, to the zero blitzes. And uh, 
as they say, necessity is the mother of invention. It was time for some other form of pressure, and uh, there's, it's still around, so the concept must be fairly valid. I'm talking about probably in the early 80s when I started doing it, so it's 25 or 30 years. That, uh, you got more people doing it, so you've got more ramifications. Uh, the offenses know more of what to do with it, but I think now the mixture with the zone pressure in with the man pressure is probably the way it's going to be for a while. It hadn't changed for 25 years or so. So uh, if, I, if I've got anything that I'll leave the game, it will be the concept of a zone pressure. The first time that I thought it was ready for a game was in a, in a preseason game. And Archie Griffin, who's a, an old Ohio State Buckeye, in fact, he's the only man to win the Heisman Trophy twice. Uh, he was a halfback. We had his brother, Raymond Griffin, play uh, uh, corner for us. And the first time that I sent uh, David Fulcher, our strong safety, and then trapped him behind him with the corner, uh, the quarterback threw the ball right to the corner, and, and uh, Ray Griffin went 60 yards for a touchdown with it. And I said, hmm, this might be something worth expanding on. But uh, it had instant success, and I think that helped uh, with the credibility with the coaching staff. Today, you you can't go to a, a game that you don't see some zone pressure. Uh, I always felt that I had an advantage because from being in at the ground floor uh, with the foundation of building the zone pressures, uh, I could take a look at something and know right away what the weakness was and what had to be done to fix it. And uh, over the years, uh, because of that ability to instantly correct, uh, I think we were much more effective with it than than any team. Uh, the Steelers are the ones that, that took it uh, out of the universe, really. Uh, the right combination of scheme and players, you guys made them click, man. I mean, we had a we had a great coach to install. Uh, the game plan and get us prepared for what we would see week in and week out. A transition to week 13, like I said, the Steelers won that ball game 33 to 10, a fairly cold ball game. If you go back in time, the, the Patriots were, a, were the favorites. They were a two, two and a half point favorite, even with their backup quarterback, Matt Castle, uh, starting. We entered the ball game, coach. We were eight and three after beating the Cincinnati, the Bengals the previous week. The Patriots, they were seven and four after beating the Miami Dolphins the previous week also. Uh, James Harrison, as we know him as Debo, had an unbelievable game. Uh, ten tackles, two sacks, two forced fumbles. Troy had an interception. Uh, Lawrence Timmons, my fellow Florida State Seminole, had an interception coach and he got ran down on the goal line, uh, by a tight end from about 20 yards, something that he probably would never, uh, uh, live out. 89 yard return, but did not get the final yard for him to be able to get into the end zone. <laughs> it's something that we laugh about consistently now. The rest of his playing career, we never <laughs> let him forget that. Exactly, exactly. I, I, I look back at the tape uh, from the highlight. I think we were in 57, which was a nickel, uh, nickel dime call for us in our sub package, and LT had man-to-man coverage on the running back, and the running back ran it out. LT jumped right in front of it, and I remember everybody yelling, and we all put our touchdown uh, hands up, you know, the signal for a touchdown, because we all thought he would get into the end zone, and Benjamin Watson, 
came out of nowhere, ran them down. Has that ran them down from about thirty yards to be exact, Coach? Do you remember that? Oh, I never forget it. When LT went past me, he was flying. You know, Lawrence could run for yes. his he could really run. I said, man, that sticks. They ain't catching him. And he got down about, it was probably all the way down the inside there 20 before it happened, but it looked like an elephant jumped on his back. <laughs> and he couldn't hardly move his legs. And then he, he got inside the 10, and it was like he was in waist-deep water. And finally, a couple <laughs> got jumped on his back. I think they tackled him on about the one. But it definitely cemented the game because he maybe he didn't score, but I think it just took us one play to go ahead and get in. But Lawrence never ever lived that down. <laughs> we we never exactly. let him live it. Uh, no question, no question. Looking at some of the game notes, so like I said, Matt Castle was a starting quarterback. He only threw for 169 yards, uh, two interceptions. He was sacked five times from uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers defense. Randy Moss, of course, who was on that team, an outstanding. Uh, wide receiver, we know Hall of Famer, one of the best to ever do it. Only had four catches for 45 yards. He was being shadowed by Ike Taylor. Coach, when looking at opposing offenses that have an elite players at certain positions, and for this game, Randy Moss was that elite, was that elite guy. What's the game plan going into that week of knowing that you have a, one of the best in the world at what they do? and finding a way to neutralize him and make him a non-factor. How do you come up with game plans or strategies strategies against those type of players? Well, uh, my philosophy there has always been uh, they're, they're great players. They're great. They have the statistics for a reason. It's because they're they're better at what they do than the average bear. And, and uh, you have to go in the game understanding that, that you're playing against a special athlete here. Uh, I remember early when when Randy first came into the league. I mean, uh, our our DBs, you you were one. You know, you're used to fast guys, and then you play against them every day on the practice field, and you play against them every every Sunday on on the game day field. Uh, but when we we he was with Minnesota then, I believe when he came in the league, we were playing them in Minnesota. And uh, my guys come off the field, and there was a different look on their face, the DBs. And I'm talking to them, and I'm telling them, you got to do this, got to do that, got to do this. And they just look back at me and say, Coach, he's fast. I said, I know he's fast. I'm telling you what you got to do to slow him down a little bit. But uh, when you get a player that that the opponent who is used to speed comes out there and says, "Oh, she's really fast." Uh, that uh, you know he's special. Uh, my philosophy in that situation has always been: you know he's going to catch some balls. He's going to he's going to have some plays. You cannot allow that man to dictate the game. You cannot allow the one punch that you know the opponent's got. If it's a right cross, you got to make him beat you with a jab. If it's a right hook, an uppercut, you can't let him hit you with the uppercut. So you got to take that guy's dominance away. And uh, to me, that was always easier than saying you got to stop so and so because if he was stoppable, he wouldn't have the reputation that that they have. I'm talking about great running backs here, wonderful tight ends. In this case, we're talking about a wide receiver 
who was probably the best deep ball receiver that's ever played. Mm-hmm. In that particular game, uh, the way we stopped him, we, we had a great player on him at Ike. Uh, that's the first thing that we had. But we had great pressure on the quarterback all night. And uh, the quarterback doesn't throw quite as accurately when he's laying on his back as he mm-hmm. does when he's standing up. And uh, as you, you alluded to the sack total there, but uh, uh, Castle's quarterback rating that that game was under ten. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I, <laughs> yeah, it was low. Uh, it was under ten. Under ten. Uh, that means that he was sacked more times probably than Balty completed. But uh, as a coach, you you uh, you design a game plan again around what your guys can do, and. Uh, and then you match it against the strengths that the other team has, and then you let your players go play. And, and that particular game, uh, and New England was great then as they are now. Uh, Brady has a has a a winning record against us, but we we had some really good games against him. We beat him uh, at home uh, a couple of times, a couple of big games. We beat him at home. I remember that. And I do remember this game, but Brady wasn't in there. And uh, to be totally honest with you, I wasn't upset that he wasn't in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in that in that game up there, I remember it was uh, a typical late-season uh, New England game. That was a raw night, uh, a mm-hmm. misty night, as I recall. And uh, uh, I think we were behind at half, weren't we? Yeah, uh, actually, it was it was tied. It was ten ten. It was it was a close game, and I don't know that we ever had a lead till the second half. And then yep. uh, they were, I, I don't know, at one point in the game, I think they were zero for twelve on third down. So mm-hmm. when you're dominating a team on third down and getting off the field consistently uh, with the offense that we had, it was just a matter of time before they were going to get up there somewhere near thirty points. And I didn't think anybody was going to get 30 points against that defense any place. So I thought we were in pretty good shape once we got to, uh, some uh, turnovers going there in the second half. But uh, that team grew as the season went along. And uh, we had had some injuries earlier in the year on both sides of the ball. And at the end of the year, when we made that run, uh, we were a totally different team than the one that posted the record we had going into the playoffs. That that team was unbeatable at the end of the year. Uh, yes, sir. Talking about third downs, uh, the inability to sustain drives and create first downs was something the Patriots were not able to do. Coach, they were one of 13 on third down, completed one third down opportunity throughout the ball game. And in the red zone, they were one of four. That's winning football and talking about going into half, tied 10-10 on the road in a playoff atmosphere. The adjustments that you made for the defense, because we did not allow one point in the second half. Talk a little bit about your game plan as far as your adjustments when things seem to not work as well as you would like them to do in the first half, changing things up a little bit, giving them a different look in the second half. People would be totally amazed at how little time you have at halftime, but the time mm-hmm. the players yeah. have a chance uh, to take care of some things. And 
you actually, you know, it takes a while to get in from the field, and then it takes a while to get everybody ready to go out to the field. And I think you only get 15 minutes anyhow. So you're talking about actually talking to the players maybe seven or eight minutes because you want to have at least seven or eight minutes uh, to try to collect your thoughts of what you're going to try to do in the second half. So that's how quick it's got to happen. And uh, we, therefore, we've never got uh, too enamored with with uh, gross changes at halftime. But sometimes you just you have to change direction. I don't think we changed that much in that particular game because, again, we were winning on third down. Uh, we were forcing the field goals, and uh, uh, in the long run. If you hold the score down and give the uh, offense a chance to win the game, you're doing your job as a defense, and you got to keep you got to keep the opponent from controlling the ball. You got to get the ball back for your guys, and you got to keep that scoreboard in a situation where your guys don't have to score 40 points every week to win. And uh, those are things that I felt pretty confident that you guys were going to do. And uh, you know, we went. So many weeks in that game, in that year, nobody scored anything hardly. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I, I just remember adjusting the pressures a little bit, but I didn't. I thought we were on the right track, particularly with that third down statistic, and we were getting good pressure. And then you guys got the turnovers, and most of those came in the second half yeah. and blew the game open, really, with your turnovers. And the uh, Sometimes those are created. Most of the time they're created. Sometimes uh, the offense makes a mistake, and uh, it was kind of a combination of that. I just think we eroded them down. We warmed them, and mm-hmm. that's what happened in that game. Coach, talking about turnovers and pressures, James Harrison in the third quarter just pretty much dominated the game by himself. himself. He had two sacks, two forced fumbles, and that – Gave us the opportunity from the offensive standpoint to put points on the, on the scoreboard. And clearly that's where we won the ball game. Talk a little bit about James Harrison, James Debo Harrison or Silverback. You know, he had many nicknames, uh, there in the Steeler organization, but what made him so special? Well, uh, he's one of my favorite stories and, uh, I don't speak too much, uh, I don't do a lot of public speaking and, uh, I never want to take it away. From my job, but uh, now that I'm retired, I, I might do some, but I'm, I'm, I'm not much for it. But uh, he's one of my favorite stories when I do speak uh, because James Harrison, I think, was uh, released from the National Football League roster five times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. It might have been six. I'm damn sure it was at least four. But I think it was five times that he tried to make the league and was released, and uh, he he persevered. And uh, I've always been proud to say, I think he was released by the Steelers three times, but I've always been proud to say I was never part of the coaching staff when he got <laughs> released. When I saw him uh, on, on the practice field in training camp, uh, that was my first introduction to him. And I watched uh, our guys, I, I always watched it, few days of practice before I even really start talking about the players too much. And uh, 
Coach uh, Keith Butler was our, our line, uh, linebacker coach at that time. He's a coordinator now and a great coach. Uh, I said, Coach Butler, I said, who's this Harrison? And he said, well, he's from Kent State, and, and he get, filled me in a little background, this and that. And I said, well, I haven't seen anybody block him yet. And we've been in camp about three days to two a days. Uh, I think we we need to figure out some way to keep him on his squad. Well, uh, that was the first team that he made. It was the first year that I had come back to Pittsburgh to coach. And uh, uh, he James helped himself that year in the preseason by being a fantastic special teams player. In his first his first year, that's the way he made the team. But uh, he, uh, we sure we still weren't sure exactly what we had with him, but we knew we had a strong guy who was almost impossible to block. We didn't realize that he was that good a pass rusher. We saw from the drills that he could rush the passer. Uh, but we went up to play Cleveland. You remember this, and. Uh, um, Joey Porter got in a fight with their with Cleveland's fullback before the damn game even started. <laughs> that actually, it was the running back. I think it was William Green. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they, they, threw, they threw them both out of the game before the game even started. <laughs> so we, and uh, the whole team had almost gone off the field when, when the uh, ref came over to uh, Coach Cowher and he said, uh, uh, Porter's out of the game. And Bill came to me and he said, uh, Dick, he said, they thrown Joey out of the game. So I, we were leaving the field and Coach Butler was already in the locker room. And I went over to him and I said, go get Harrison and find out what he can run because I don't want to call any defenses early. Uh, that's going to, you know, make him uh, tense up because he's going to be playing the whole game. And Keith thought I was kidding. He went, ho, ho, ho. I said, no, it's not ho, ho, ho. I said, he's in and he's playing the whole football game. And uh, I think that game, I think James had two sacks. I think he had three other quarterback pressures. I think he had double-digit tackles. He forced two fumbles. And we come off the field after the game, and I said, I think we found us a pretty good football player. Uh, I've had the honor to coach three most viable players uh, at the National Football League defense, uh, and, and they were all Steelers. Uh, Troy Palmolive, uh, James Harrison, they won the award, but I always count James Ferrier uh, right. as the most, uh, the outstanding defensive uh, player uh, his great season. And, uh, uh, the the linebacker from Baltimore won it that year, and James finished second in the in the voting. But our defense uh, outplayed the Baltimore's defense in every statistic. Our team outplayed them. Uh, we had a better record. We won our division. Uh, James Ferrier should have been uh, the MVP uh, that year, I think. But James Harrison was. Uh, he he won it the year that he intercepted the ball. And, and took it back all the way 
uh, in the in the Super Bowl, which to me is the greatest football play I've ever seen. Offense, defense, special teams, whatever you want. That play was unbelievable. Yeah, and he uh, he did that by accident. He wasn't even supposed to be there. He was supposed to blitz. Yeah. Well, you know what I always tell when people ask about that? I said, well, I always gave, taught my players to be innovative. <laughs> <laughs> James said that when I asked him about that, that James said that uh, he knew there weren't any timeouts left, and he knew uh, that they couldn't run the ball because if they ran it and didn't make it, they wouldn't be able to kick uh, their field goal. And so he said, I engaged my guy and then dropped back and looked for the pass that I knew was coming somewhere, and their quarterback, who was a great player, he threw it, and James picked it off. But the, the greatness of that play is not the pick, but the run. He yeah. ran. He must have ran 150 yards with that play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another play that I I used to the teaching aid uh, every every time everywhere I've been since then, which is not much, but uh, I would show you guys a lot where uh, people came uh, from clear off the other side of the field and got key blocked all the way down. And Deshae got the key block right there that got him started. And it was just a, a great team effort. And uh, you you might agree with this, you might not, but I think you it's hard to not agree with it. James Harrison was probably the best-conditioned athlete on the football team. And yeah. he, he just never he, – he was unbelievable. There's not any other – uh, 265-pound guys that could run 125 yards like that, and it was about a 100-degree temperature. Mm-hmm. And it was the last play of the half. If you remember, James just fell into the corner of the end zone and laid there. And But after he got that halftime break and a little bit of oxygen, he came back and played a dominant second half. And that's what kind of condition he was in. Uh, most people that size, if they ran that far, that would be it for them for the day. <laughs> they yeah. might be out there, but they wouldn't be dominating uh, the opponent. Uh, but uh, Harrison was a special man. Uh, he's retiring this year, so uh, I think it, it, it's uh, unique. But I, I, I'll always remember it, that he and I came in together to Pittsburgh and, and we're going out of the league together. Yeah. Uh, He's one of my favorite, all-time favorite stories of, man, it ain't over till it's over, and, and you're never beaten until the game ends. He never gave up. He never gave up on his dream of playing in the National Football League. Uh, he was over in Europe. He was in Baltimore. He was in Pittsburgh. He was here. He was there. And he, he got the door shut in his face every place that he went. But he never gave up. And finally, uh, the situation was where uh, we had to have him. And by God, he became one of the best football players that you'd ever want to see. Yes, yes. Uh, he was a great teammate. You know, when you look at Debo from the outside looking in, many people were intimidated by him. But to us in the building, I mean, Debo, he was a big, you know, he's, he was he was soft as pudding as far as, you know, his sense of humor, his personality. Uh, we used to have some good times and just seeing how he involved to be one of the best pass rushers in the game. And I think he will be a Hall of Famer. And just you 
seeing his entire story pretty much develop as a guy that's never quit on his dreams. And that year right there, he had an unbelievable campaign along with Troy. Real quick, Coach, you know, I need to hear your opinion about Troy Palomalu as a player because, of course, I play with Troy and I try to tell detailed stories about Troy. But what was it about Troy that set him apart from any other player that you've coached in your career? Uh, well, I, 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 that's another one of my favorite topics is talking about Troy. Uh, I will say this before we leave James. Uh, we had the bookend outside linebackers with Lamar Woodley and James. Yep. And uh, your defense, when you're solid out there on the outside like they were, Neither one of those guys could you block at all in the run. And both of them, if you left them one-on-one with anybody, were going to get pressure. They were both uh, a coach's dream. And uh, one of the super strengths of, of that defense was those two outside linebackers that forced everything up in, inside of that meat grinder. And you've already named some of the players that were sitting up inside there, and one of them was Troy. Uh, the thing that when I try to explain uh, Troy Palomalo's greatness, uh, he moved at, at a different level than the human body moves. That's the only way I can explain it. His point A to point B speed for a guy over 200 pounds, was uh, off the charts. And uh, I would have people, I mean, uh, you know, women, older women, that just football fans, and they would, I'd be in a conversation, and they they would say, I'll bet you can't guess who my favorite Steeler is. I I would say, Unfailingly, I'd say, I'll bet I can. It's Troy Palomaro. And they would say, how did you know that? I said, because I get asked that question by about 5,000 people a year, and it's always <laughs> Troy is the answer. Because whether you uh, had a background in football or just enjoyed watching football and rooting for the, the Steelers, you could sit in the stands or watch on television and see that this guy was moving at a different rate than the other athletes, very gifted athletes, superior athletes. Troy had that shot out of a cannon, point A to point B, and it took the quarterbacks at least four years to understand that everything that they see in practice every day against world-class football players you got to throw it out the window when Troy's around because he's moving at a different rate. And uh, that's as close as an explanation to Troy's greatness as I can give you. Uh, Carnell Lake was very, very similar because Carnell was a 218-pound safety that was he would run right with Rod Woodson, who was a world-class track star. I mean world-class, competed in Europe and won. Uh, but Carnell could move with him. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know, your memory's always a little better with the guy you coached uh, the most recent, but I don't know if anyone ever moved any quicker from point A to point B than Troy did. He was like a corner, but yeah. he was a, he was a safe. We were playing uh, a game one day, and the 
that a quarterback threw a flare pass behind the line of scrimmage. It was six yards deep, and Troy had dropped into a zone, so he was 12 yards deep. So he was 18 to 20 yards away from the guy that caught the ball. And before he could turn up field and gain any yards, he threw him for a loss. It looked like if someone just shot him out of a cannon, like the old circus uh, act. But he was... Uh, he had phenomenal reaction ability, and uh, like all of you guys, uh, you never were beaten. You never, you never gave up the game. You never gave up the play. You never gave up the quarter. Uh, you were always competitive. Uh, you you fought individually and collectively. And Troy was probably the epitome of that. He he, he was his uh, his thirst to be successful, to win the down, uh, well, all you're ever going to get is a tie on most of you guys, but Troy for sure. I don't mind talking about guys like Harrison and Troy and Casey Hampton and, and <laughs> Brett Kiesel and Aaron Smith. It was a pretty good, uh, pretty good outfit. Oh, yeah, we had outstanding players. Uh, a lot of future Hall of Famers <laughs> on that team, in my opinion, uh, to follow no up. No, uh, no doubt. Yeah, so, you know, I can't wait to get a chance to attend those ceremonies. Uh, to follow up the second half production from the Steelers, uh, like I said, we dominated in the second half. We scored 13 points, allowed zero. In the fourth quarter, uh, we scored 10 points, allowed zero. And that Lawrence Timmons touchdown that we talked about earlier provided the last scoring opportunity, scoring touchdown for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, we ended up after that week, we're nine and five. Uh, midway, pretty much almost through the season. And the following week, which will be week 14, we have another special guest joining us here on the podcast, no other than the Shea Townsend, another one of Coach LeBeau's favorite, favorite players to recap the week 14 victory against the Dallas Cowboys. But once again, Coach, man, it was an honor being able to get you on to go back in time a little bit and talk about that storied season led by a historical Great defense. You were the, the catalyst for that team, the mastermind for that team. Hearing some of these legendary stories, man, you don't get, you don't get this every day. Well, thank you, uh, B-Mac. You uh, alluded early when you started the, uh, the program uh, that you looked at yourself as a historian and you were always kind of unique for a young player coming up and, and the interest that you had in the history of the game. And uh, in this in this conversation that we've had today, we really didn't talk uh, very much about a lot of players on that on that great defense from that year. Uh, but uh, you know, those corners, Deshay and Ike, uh, they were just week in and week out. You couldn't do anything with any of them. And I did talk about the fact that we had no weaknesses anywhere. But Casey. Uh, was probably the best nose tackle I've ever seen. And I know there's been a lot of great ones, but you, you could never block him ever. And uh, Aaron Smith, he, it was never, never <laughs> on his, off his feet and, and breath, and they never quit. I mean, and that linebacker core, I never had such a group of linebackers. I mean, they were just fantastic. I mean, you can go right down everybody, and I think that's the reason the numbers are what they are from that defense, and I think that's the reason that I believe 
that those numbers are not going to be matched again in the National Football League. It, no one's come close to them. And that, uh, the great Seattle defense that won the championship and everybody talks about, but they're really, their numbers are not anywhere close to that. You can look it up in the book, but it's true, believe me. And yeah. uh, I have a special spot in my heart for that season, uh, for that group. And uh, it's always wonderful to have a chance to talk uh, to a part of that uh, defense as we have uh, today. And you take care of yourself, B-Mac. I definitely will. And like I said, Coach, it's an honor. Once again, Steeler fans, you had an opportunity recapping the Week 13 victory against the New England Patriots with no other than the Hall of Fame, legendary, iconic man, Dick LeBeau, 14-year NFL player, 45 years as an NFL coach, two-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers. In the words of Dick LeBeau, adios. Great day to be alive, man. Yes, sir. It's a great day to be alive. Thanks, coach. Adios.